When I was a child, one of my favorite TV shows, and you have to grant here that Malaysia was always, I don't know, this is not going to hold, is it? Yeah, that's not going to hold. Okay. Thank you. You have to um, understand that in Malaysia, you know, TV shows were always a little bit behind what they were in America. Uh, nevertheless, I am a child of the 80s, and so the TV show that captured my childhood imagination was MacGyver. And there's Matthew, a fellow lover of 80s TV shows as well. MacGyver, Knight Rider, it was kind of a close uh, toss-up. But MacGyver was always, um, I think it was MacGyver who first inspired me to want to be a physicist. Or supposedly he was. Um, but he did everything with his Swiss Army knife, which is what made him so remarkable. And uh, if you remember MacGyver episodes, you know, as it went on, you, you would sort of find, he would find himself in these situations and you would think to yourself, and how is he going to get himself out of this one? And then you're like, this, this has got to be where they, where they kill him. You know, this has got to be where it's over. I mean, and then all of a sudden, with a paper clip and a chewing gum wrapper, he finds a way to get out. You're like, how does this guy do it? He keeps doing it. Well, <laughs> God is even better than MacGyver. <laughs> there are situations where you might think in life, and you might think, wait a minute now, how is God going to get out of this mess, and, and, and how is God going to resolve this? The interesting thing about a show like MacGyver is in the 80s, there, there was this optimism sort of about our heroes, and we had this optimism that our heroes were always going to find a way, no matter how great the mess, they were going to find a way, and they were going to do it, and then now kind of we make postmodern stories where the hero like might die, you know, you might watch this movie, and it might, and like I remember the first time watching The Perfect Storm, you ever seen that movie? And I watched it, and I thought, okay, well, this is going to be amazing. How are they going to survive this? And they don't. <laughs> you know? and like, Sorry if I ruined the movie for you, but it's, it's quite old now. And, uh, and I thought, wow, I mean, why did I waste 10 bucks on this, you know? I, I'm a child of these. I want to see stories resolve. Well, I want to see the good guy get out. Well, the stories in Scripture are interesting because... You see both ends, and, and even if you think about the, the hall of faith chapter, so to speak, in Hebrews 11, you see sometimes follow, the people who follow God get delivered, and sometimes they don't. But here's the one thing they always believe. They believe that God will sort things out in the end. That God will always be faithful. God is not the hero that, that the circumstances get the best of. God is the guy who always finds a way to triumph. God is the one who is always faithful. Now, a lot of us this morning could probably think of life situations or circumstances in your own, um, maybe job stuff, maybe different life situations where you're saying, you know what, I, I don't know how God is going to resolve this. Well, I don't know if God's going to come through here or what's God going to do with this mess. Maybe some of you are thinking about that after the whole election stuff on Tuesday night and you're thinking, oh boy, now what? Some of you. Some of you might be thinking, marijuana? Colorado? And, and asking yourself questions like, okay, so, so if Christians or if the church sort of keeps finding itself pushed out toward the margins and no longer in the center, the question then really becomes even more important, doesn't it? Well, is God going to be faithful even now? How will he come through this time? Thank you, Jim. Acts 24 is where we are this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to it. Paul finds himself in a very tough spot. In fact, uh, if you've been following the series, it's been chapter after chapter of, of different political speeches and different 
um, um, you know, rulers that he finds himself in front of. Paul, in a way, is, is kind of like a political hot potato. He keeps getting passed around. You know, they're like, oh, no, we don't want him. No, we don't want him. And so Jewish authorities, they, they want him, but they want to kill him. And so Roman authorities are like trying to step in and like, no, we'll, we'll protect him. And they bring him before this person and this person. And now here he is before a, a, a ruler named Felix. And, and Felix is a Roman authority and, and he's, um, they're, he's about to hear this case. But the, but, but, um, so pick up the story here with me in verse 1. Five days later, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. And they pressed charges against Paul before the governor. And after the governor summoned Paul, Tertullus began to make his case against him. And he declared, now it's standard practice for a lawyer giving an opening speech, even in this day, to say some very flattering words about the magistrate or the governor who's, who's ruling on the case. But what Tertullus is about to say is, not just kind, gracious um, words. It's a good old-fashioned um, butt-kissing. And he says, he says, he declared, under your leadership, we have experienced substantial peace. Even though Josephus and other sources tell us that Felix was the one who ruthlessly killed people in order to quell any kind of riots or rebellions. We've experienced substantial peace. And your administration has brought reforms to our nation. It hadn't. Always and everywhere, most honorable Felix, we acknowledge this with deep gratitude. I don't want to take too much of your time, so I ask that you listen with your usual courtesy to our brief statement of the facts. Wow. <laughs> I'm sorry to tell us you got a little something here. And so he goes on and he says, look, this is what Paul's up to. This is what Paul's been doing and it's not right. And, and, and look, there's, there's all this clear evidence about it. And he makes his case and... And Felix listens. And then verse 10. The governor then nodded at Paul, giving him permission to speak. And he responded, I know that you have been judge over this nation for many years. Paul is less gushing in his opening speech. So I gladly offer my own defense. You can verify that I went up to worship in Jerusalem no more than 12 days. They didn't find me arguing with anyone in the temple or stirring up a crowd, whether in the synagogue or anywhere else in the city. Nor can anyone prove to you the allegations they are now bringing against me. Paul is kind of saying, look, there's no evidence and, and the accusers aren't, aren't even here. This case shouldn't even hold any weight. And then he goes on and he says, but I do admit this to you. I am a follower of the way, the way which they call a faction or a sect. Accordingly, I worship the God of our ancestors and believe everything set out in the law and written in the prophets. This is our first stopping point in the text. Why is Paul saying this? He's basically saying, okay, look, I, I'm not doing anything uh, Ill illegal. There aren't any riots here. I know you Roman governors, all you care about is the peace, and you'll keep the peace at any price. And, I, and Paul's saying, look, that, that's not, I, I haven't been up to no good. And furthermore, I do believe in the same God and the same prophets. Why is Paul saying this? If you know a little bit about why Christians were persecuted in the early centuries, you would say maybe there's a political reason for Paul saying this. The political reason being, Rome was very suspicious of any new religion. In fact, they were suspicious of any religion that threatened the social harmony. So Judaism was kind of a threat to the social rest because Judaism claimed that there was only one God. They were staunchly monotheistic and Rome 
was sort of indifferent about it. They said, look, we'll take your God and your God and your God. And if, if it means that we can all get along and make money and have the economy booming, then we don't really care. Let, let all your gods play. It's fine. Once again, a situation we can't relate to. And, but, but Judaism was allowed to function within the empire because at least they were an old religion. And so as an old religion with a long history... Rome sort of said, okay, fine, you claim to sort of believe in this, you know, monotheism, fine, but, but, you know, you're old. The problem that Christianity faced is Jews were trying to distance the Christians from themselves, which is why these guys, when they're talking to, to, to Felix, they say, look, these are worshipers, of, these are followers of a different sect. They might as well say a heretical group or a cult. These are guys, they don't belong. They're not with us. And Paul's saying, yeah, we are. We're the same. It's the same God. So maybe in some ways, Paul has a political reason for saying this, to try to say, we're not some newfangled religion, we, we're as old as these guys, whatever privileges you grant them, please grant us. But I think there is also a theological reason that Paul says it's the same God and the same hope. Because Paul really does believe that. Because Paul really believes that Jesus is the culmination of the story of Israel. Now stop for a moment, because for a lot of us, we say, well, Glenn, I mean, I, I don't know why that matters. I mean, we sort of had Adam and Eve, they sinned in the garden, and then fast forward, we got Jesus who came for the sin of humanity. True? True. Totally and completely true. But then what was all the stuff in the Old Testament about? Oh, well, Glenn, that was God. He sort of tried this thing. He called a family. He called a nation, and they were really bad and unfaithful. And then God said, oh, son, would you just go down there and fix this? And so Jesus came. Now, some of you, that's how you've been trained. That's how I was taught to see the story of the Scripture. As if God sort of tried a couple things out and it didn't work, and then He said, okay, Jesus, you want to go? Okay, I'll go, yeah. (laughs) The trouble is, that's not quite how the story of the Old Testament unfolds, is it? In fact, if you were to read, immerse yourself in the stories and the poems and the songs of the Old Testament, paying attention to the broad strokes, I think, here's a little reading guide, if you will, for the Old Testament. Sometimes with the Old Testament, we get hung up on all of the the little itty-bitty details that we miss what's going on. It's much better to catch the big arc of the story first. And the arc of the story goes something like this. In Genesis 1 and 2, God makes the world and He calls it good. He makes it on purpose and with pleasure. And He asks humans to rule it, but humans make a mess of it and they decide they want to be rulers on their own. And so they get sent out of the garden. This, by the way, is a microcosm of Israel's own story, isn't it? God chose Israel, gave them a land, they were unfaithful, they were sent out of the land. This story of being exiled and the hope of homecoming is a major motif in the Old Testament. One of the fun things about looking at the Bible with broad strokes is you'll see that these writers were not, um, uh, how should I say it, these writers are, are, are good at their craft. They're good at poetry, they're good at helping us see the, the big arc of the story. And so then in Genesis uh, 12, things have gotten to this bad state. The flood's already happened and all of this stuff. And God calls a family and He calls a man named Abraham. And He says, look, through you, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. So was God's plan from the beginning to save one people or all people? You can talk back. Oh. All people. <laughs> all people. Through Abraham's family. 
And as they journey along, we know the story of the Old Testament. We know kind of how Israel, they're they're doing good. Moses comes, delivers them from Egypt, leads them to the brink of the promised land. Joshua takes them in. They have this bout with judges and there's some faithful judges, some unfaithful judges. Then they, they try to rush the thing and they get a king on their own and it's Saul, but he's not quite the guy. And then there is the great king, David. And this is Israel's golden age. David is the king who defeats the enemies of God, the enemies of Israel, restores, unites the clans, literally, in a brave heart sort of way, unites the people, and they, they, he introduces kind of the beginning of the monarchy in its proper form, a, a united, golden age kind of kingdom, except that it quickly unravels. And you have Solomon who sins with all of his adultery and idolatry. And then after that, the kingdom gets split. Paul starts to see that in Jesus, God begins to answer. When you get to the end of the Old Testament, you have the nation of Israel divided in two halves. You've got the northern part and you've got the southern part. And, 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 and uh, the northern part has been taken by Assyria. 722 BC, they get taken by the Assyrians. They get scattered. All hope seems to be lost. But then there's Judah. And Judah's like these two or three tribes, and you're thinking, well, these, these guys, that's where Jerusalem is. God won't abandon Jerusalem, will he? And then you see, because of their own unfaithfulness, Babylon comes and gets them, 584, 585, somewhere around there, takes them into exile. And the, towards the end of the Old Testament, all of a sudden, they begin to return, right? Babylon gets overrun by Persia. The Persian king's a little nicer. They begin to return. But when they return, what do they find? Is the land just as they left it, with homes and gardens and wells waiting for them? No. It's been a long time. And they come back and they're devastated to see Samaritans living where their brothers once lived. And this is part of the reason why Jews hated the Samaritans. And they come back in and they see the temple and they say, Oh my goodness, what happened? The glory, it's, it's, it's over. And they, they try to rebuild a temple and the prophets try to give them hope and say the glory of the latter temple is going to be better than the first one. And they're looking at the shack and they're saying, I don't think so. Solomon's is pretty good. And there's all this stuff that is going on. And really when you get to the end of the Old Testament, it's the ultimate cliffhanger moment. Because you get to the edge of it and the question on everybody's minds is, what is God going to do now? Once again, my child, don't worry. <laughs> See, no, nobody ought to fear your bad behavior in church because it's always my family. The question at the edge of the Old Testament is, what is God going to do now? And here are the choices, okay? Choice A is that God scraps the whole world because the world is a mess. Even the people God chose are unfaithful and sin has infected every, every part of the world and every civilization. It's wicked and evil. So choice A is scrap the whole world. Choice B is forget his promise to Abraham. He said he was going to use Abraham, but I don't know. This whole Abraham thing isn't working. Maybe God needs to just sort of use someone else. Choice A is scrap the project called Earth. Choice B is forget his promise. Do you know, there's this other option. And that is the great mystery of the Scriptures. That somehow Jesus Christ comes 
And He comes as the true seed of Abraham. This is why Matthew begins his Gospel tracing the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to whom? Abraham. Jesus comes as the true and better Moses, which is why when Jesus stands up in Matthew's Gospel to to give His Sermon on the Mount, Matthew makes it a point to say phrases that make Jesus sound like the true and better Moses. And then Jesus comes and they start calling Him Messiah, Son of David, as the true Son of David, the long-awaited King who would finally and at last defeat God's enemies and usher in the kingdom. Paul has all of this in the back of his mind. We know this because of all the other letters Paul would write. But when he says, I'm worshiping the same God with the same hope, he's saying, look, the God that I serve doesn't scrap his projects and doesn't forget his promises. It's not an option for him to scrap the whole world and start over. It's not an option for him to forget about Abraham and Abraham's family and and, and just sort of do something different. What God does is bring Jesus out of this family, fulfill Israel's call, and all of a sudden open the way for the world. Last week I told you that the phrase Son of God was a Caesar reference. That's true, but it's not its only reference. This is the trick with some of these titles in the New Testament is you can look at it with a few different lenses. So if you put on the Caesar lens and you hear Lord and Savior and Son of God, you think, aha, they're saying Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. That's true. But do you know one of the other things they're saying when they call Jesus Son of God? What is the Old Testament? Who does the Old Testament call God's Son? Anybody? Israel. Remember in Exodus where he says, Israel is my son, my firstborn. And he says to Pharaoh, look, Pharaoh, you let my firstborn go or I'm going to take your firstborn. That's the motif in Exodus. So when Jesus comes and says, I'm the Son of God, they're saying, he's saying, I am the true fulfillment of Israel. I am where the Israel story was always going to end up. You're like, wait, really? How did that happen? How did that happen? How is it that from the beginning... God always knew this was what He was going to do. What does this tell us about God? First of all, it tells us that God has been faithful from the beginning. It means God's not the kind of God that says, well, I'll try this, but I'm not really committed to it, and if it doesn't work, I'm going to bail. You know, I read a New York Times article about 20-somethings, 30-somethings, all of us with our gadgets that, that we can text and get a hold of each other so quickly. Gadgets, texting is like, what, 20 years old? But I sound old, don't I? But it's talking about how, how young people, 20-somethings, 30-somethings, cancel and bail on plans all the time. Right? Yeah, and some of the, some of the grown-ups are like, oh, don't tell me about it. <laughs> Supposed to be at our dinner group five minutes before. Ooh, can't come. And what it is is some other, someone else asks you out to a movie or something. You know? But you have, you have this ability to kind of say, well, I think I'll do this, but if something better comes up, I'll do this. That's not what God's like. Uh, when Paul says, look, it's the same God, he's saying, look, this is the God who through thick and thin, through an unfaithful Israel, stayed true to His promise. This is the God who said, I'm going to use this family, and from this family all nations will be blessed. How, God? How are you going to stay true to that? Jesus. Jesus. When you read Romans 2 and Romans 3, Paul kind of makes this argument. And, And again, 
we talked about this, it's possible that Paul's already written Romans by the time he's giving this speech. And he says, Jesus is the faithfulness of God. How do you know that God is going to come through? How do we know that God has been faithful from the beginning? Because Jesus came. But then Paul goes on and he says this interesting line in verse 15. He says, and the hope that I have in God, I also share with my accusers. I'm not making this up. There will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous. What he means by that is there's going to be a day after death where everybody is resurrected, given new bodies, and then either given a judgment to life or a judgment to death, an eternal death. And so then Paul says, and so... On account of this, I've committed myself to maintaining a clear conscience before God and with all people, the hope of resurrection. What is the hope of resurrection? Most, most of us, if you're like me, if you grew up in the kind of churches and culture that you did, that, that's similar to how I did, what you, the only hope you heard of was the hope of heaven. And so we heard about an ethereal place that we were one day going to go to and that's where we'd hang out and... Okay, but Paul is speaking here of a hope of resurrection. What is that? I'll give you a sentence for it. One of the ways you can think about resurrection is this. It's the promise that God will sort things out and set things right in the end. Resurrection is this hope that God will sort things out and set things right in the end. That all of a sudden, it's not just going to be Okay, wow, this world was really a mess. Well, come, away, come, come over to my place and we'll live happily ever after over there. Because remember, we talked about this. We just said this. God's options were A, scrap the world, or B, forget His promise. He did neither. He kept His promise and He won't abandon His project of the world. Resurrection is Paul's way of saying that God, what God started, He will complete even if it means letting it pass through death and then being rebuilt, remade. Thinking of another 80s show, we'll build him faster, stronger, better, you know, $6 million man. Only better than that. Read what Paul writes later in Corinthians about resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ hasn't been raised either. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. And what's more, those who have died in Christ are gone forever. Paul, why don't you talk to us about heaven? Why don't you talk to us about that place where spirits kind of float and play harps and stuff? What do you mean they're gone forever if there's no resurrection? If we have a hope in Christ only in this life, then we deserve to be pitied more than anyone else. There's something after this? Yeah. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, and He's the first crop of the harvest of those who have died. Now, my father-in-law is a farmer, but I don't need farmer expertise to know that first crop means the rest of the harvest is going to come too. The first crop is good, the rest of the harvest is going to be good. Odds are. Since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead came through one too. In the same way that everyone dies in Adam, so also everyone will be given life in Christ. Each event will happen in the right order. Now this is where Paul doesn't leave us an option to say resurrection is just spiritual. Right? Some of you, you know, if you've grown up in church you're kind of, or you've heard about this, you're like, Christians, they kind of believe in like a spiritual eternal life, right? Like 
sort of live, then you die, but then you get a spiritual eternal life. But if resurrection is just spiritual, Paul wouldn't be giving us a sequence. Listen to what he says. Each will happen in the right order. Christ, the first crop of the harvest, and then those who belong to Christ, when? At His coming. Well, that's not heaven, is it? That's something better than heaven. That makes heaven sort of a holding place until resurrection. Paul, (laughs) hang on a second, Paul. Resurrection? And then the end, when Christ hands over to the kingdom to the Father and when He brings every form of rule, every authority, and every power to an end. Let me tell you why resurrection is so surprising. We thought the mess was too bad. We thought the damage was too deep. We thought the sin was too great. We thought the world was too damaged. We thought our lives were too stained. We thought our bodies were too scarred. We thought the world was too infected. And God said, watch me. Jesus on the cross takes upon Himself all of our sin, all of our evil, all that is sick and wrong and broken in the world. It was laid on Him. And if the grave had been the end, we would all have said, wow, that was a shame. But yep, you know the world we live in. So evil. So dark. I don't know what's going to happen. And Sunday morning happens. And God raised Jesus from the dead. Paul said this is the most surprising hope there is. Remember the words we heard the New Testament reading from John 11. Remember what Martha says, Jesus says, look, I'm going to bring your brother back to life. And she says, ah, Jesus, I know that he will rise again on the last day. In other words, I've heard that there's resurrection coming. And Jesus says, no, resurrection yes, coming, sure. But I've got better news for you. I am the resurrection and the life. What God does in Jesus is so powerful and so surprising It makes our hope not just something out there that's spiritual and a heaven and a cloud and a whatever, an angel. No, 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 no. It makes it, it brings it forward and it says, what God did for Jesus on Easter morning, God will one day do for all who belong to Him. That means everything is never lost. Think about that. It's never lost, it's never over, it's not too late. You're not too far gone. What does this tell us about God? If the first thing tells us that God has been faithful from the beginning, this part of Paul's speech tells us that God will be faithful in the end. The Alpha and the Omega. The God who's been faithful from the beginning. The God who will be faithful in the end. Here's a sentence that could sum it up for you. God does not forget His promises. God does not abandon His people. God does not scrap His projects. If New Life Downtown were into refrigerator magnets, this would be our first. (laughs) God does not forget His promises. God does not abandon His people. God does not scrap His projects. 
This is not a God who switches gears, who's improvising because he doesn't know. This is a God who from, the Bible says, before the foundations of the world, the Lamb of God was slain. Jesus was always where the story of Israel was moving toward. Jesus was always the story, the, the, the place that all of the, the, the narrative of Scripture was always pointing toward. Jesus was always the faithfulness of God. Some of you this morning are saying, well, Glenn, I, I don't have any guarantees in life. You know, I was raised to, to, to believe that there's no, no guarantees. And maybe even saying that there is a hope because there is a faithful God is difficult to hear because there's been pain after pain after pain of disappointment. And maybe it just sounds like, look, this is church talk. Come on, faithfulness, hope. You don't know the disappointments. Paul standing here after being, having been beaten, after a mob almost killed him, after a Roman governor doesn't have the spine to stand up for him or for justice, after the highest religious leaders of his own faith are ready to kill him. And Paul's standing there and he's saying... I have this hope. I have this hope that won't let go. I have this, this, call me crazy, but I believe in a God who's faithful. Faithful beyond what I see. Faithful beyond the situations. Faithful beyond all of it. I have this hope. Why? Because God raised Jesus from the dead. Felix, the governor, begins to be confronted with this. In verse 24, it says, After several days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And there's this whole backstory. One of the comment- several of the commentaries talked about how this was an adulterous marriage. And basically, he had, there's a story with this where um, Felix himself was a, was a slave who had been, become a freedman, who had sort of made a name for himself through ruthless um, decisions and actions. And he'd stolen this woman as his wife from another man. I mean, this is kind of, this is like um, soap opera of the Romans, you know, in the first century. They'll probably make a special on it. And he listened, Felix listened to Paul talk about faith in Christ Jesus. And when he spoke about, what did Paul speak to Felix about? When he spoke about upright behavior. <clears throat> that moment where Paul's talking about upright behavior and Felix is <clears throat> self-control. <clears throat> and the coming judgment which will happen at the resurrection of the dead. Felix became fearful and said, go away for now. When I have time, I'll send for you. The NIV says, I'll bring you back when it's more convenient. Have you ever had a conversation with a friend and you're talking about God being loving and all this stuff and all of a sudden, you know, the rubber meets the road and you're saying, well, you know, but following Jesus does mean surrendering of your whole life. Oh, yeah, yeah. And surrendering of your whole life means you, you, you really can't live this way anymore. Well, well, I'll talk to you more about that later. You ever had those pre-evangelism conversations? Because when it comes down to it, as we said a few weeks ago, saying yes to Jesus is utter and complete surrender to Him. And Felix is like, yeah, when it's more convenient. 
Here's what I think. I think there are messes in the world and there are messes in our hearts. And I think when we come to see the God who will sort out the messes in the world, it makes us happy until we realize that that same God is going to judge the messes in our hearts. And then we get afraid. Because it's one thing to say, God, bring your justice over there. (laughs) God, bring your justice to the wicked pagans. And God says, oh, I'm bringing justice. But there's kind of this mess in here too. Oh, well, let's talk about that later. That's what happens to Felix. Paul, in this letter to Romans, this is where he puts justification and justice together. Follow me here. Paul basically says, the God who will bring justice and set things right in the end is the same God who's offering to set things right in your heart right now. The God who will bring justice to the nations and set it right is giving you the chance to let your heart be justified in Christ right now. So, well, God, (laughs) I like that you're going to bring justice out there. I'm scared when you talk about the messes in my own heart. But then Paul says, no, no, look, look, he's not asking you to clean it up. He's asking you to let him set it right. Listen, can you set right all that's wrong in the world? No. No more than you can set right what's wrong in your heart. This is where I think as cultural Christians living in a culture that has had residual Christian messages, people sort of think Christians... They're kind of about morality, right? And they're kind of about behavior and they're kind of against, you know, this stuff and this stuff and this stuff. And, and, and if I say yes to Jesus, then I sort of have to get all the messes right in my own heart, right? Instead of saying, well, listen, there is a God who's been faithful from the beginning. This God will be faithful in the end. This God will set everything right and make it new in the end. But this God is offering you the most incredible thing for the present. And he's saying, will you let me set things right in your heart right now? Say, so, well, but, but, I, I, but I, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't deserve that. And I, you know, there, there's just too much of a mess. And are you kidding me? If he can fix that mess, what can't he fix in here? If he can set right the whole world. Did you remember the Old Testament reading this morning from Psalms? It says, the God who will set everything right. This is Peterson using N.T. Wright language. It's kind of fun. That God is the God who comes to us and says, can I set something right in here? Can I put right your relationship with God? Can I put right your heart? Can I put you back in right standing with God? And the choice really for us is to either be like Felix and to say, well, that's too uncomfortable. I don't want to confess those things. I don't want to repent of those things. I don't want to admit those things. Or you could say like Paul, oh yeah, I'm saying yes to that because I need that. Because I'm Paul who was persecuting Jesus, remember? I'm Paul who got it so wrong that the Savior of the world accused me of persecuting Him. I'm Paul who is the chief of sinners, he would write. 
I'm Paul who made a bigger mess of things than you could ever imagine. And if he can set me right, if he can justify me, then he can clean up all of this stuff in you as well. Sometimes I wish I could, you know, like, uh, I don't know what it is with me with 70s and 80s TV shows referenced today, but it's rolling, Matthew, maybe it's because you're here. But, you know, sort of like the bewitched TV show where she'd go, and the whole house would be clean, you know. With four kids, three of whom are excellent at messes, and the fourth one will surely follow after them. I, I often wish, well, couldn't we just, ding, 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 and the room will be clean, you know. I know the process of God working in our lives is long. The Christian word for that is sanctification, that the Holy Spirit, it, it's a long work of His Spirit actually making us like Him. But sanctification doesn't start until justification happens. And justification, Paul would write, happens by faith. By saying to Jesus, Jesus, I believe that my own effort could never set my life right. I believe that my own good works could never set my life right. But Jesus, you're the king who's going to set the world right. Would you start here? One of the ways the Romans 3 is worded is it says we've been justified, we've been set right by the faithfulness of Jesus for all who have faith in Him. Let me ask you a question. Is it the size of your faith or the size of God's faithfulness? I think the answer overwhelmingly that Paul would give to us is God's faithfulness. The God who's been faithful from the beginning, who will be faithful in the end, whose faithfulness is revealed to us in Christ Jesus. This faithfulness is what will set you right. Just put your faith in Him. Just trust Him. Just surrender to Him. And so this morning we're coming to the table of the Lord. And we're coming because we believe in this God. The last couple slides as we prepare. What we believe about the future is what gives us hope in the present. What you think is going to happen that God will do is what gives you hope today. But here's the miracle of the gospel. Our hope for the future is actually grounded in the past. Specifically, what God has done in Christ. Why is Paul so confident of what will happen? Of what God will do? Why is Paul so confident of this? Because things around him are promising? Because his bank account and his investments are going up and to the right? More like down and down. Paul's so confident of this because Paul knew what happened in Christ. In Jesus, God has been faithful from the beginning and will be faithful in the end. You believe it this morning? Why don't we prepare our hearts and be still before the Lord? And, and maybe we can sing quietly here that chorus that we sang earlier, the same love, and just, just kind of seated right where we are and, 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 and let it sink in, you know? And then maybe just sing, sing the chorus once through and then come into a place of silent confession and, and say, God, I'm sorry for 
I'm sorry for hiding the messes in my life from you. I, I don't want to be like Felix waiting till a more convenient time. I want to bring it to you so you can set it right now. 